your kingdom come and your will be done. Now those words, that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that prayer has been prayed together by Christians in churches since before the year AD 100. We know that from a historical document that we have. And the kingdom that we pray for to come, that we're instructed to pray for is to come, is a kingdom that's not of this world. And the citizens of that kingdom now live as strangers and aliens in the present age. Live by a different code of ethics, a different way of doing things. It doesn't make much sense here. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to pray those words often because we don't naturally get it, what it means for Christ's kingdom to come, what it means to live in his kingdom. From the time Jesus began his public ministry, his followers thought that he was establishing a kingdom like one of the kingdoms of the world. Only his would be more powerful. And his followers can still tend to think that. And we need to grow in what it means to be a part of this kingdom that is not of the world. Reading today from John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's God's word. Father, today as we... Uh, Come into your presence through your word as we're drawn into the story of Jesus. And as we'll see, Jesus, he's already spoken in his prayer about being in the world but not of it. He'll speak before Pilate about a kingdom that's not of this world. Help us, Father, not merely to understand uh, what those words mean what Jesus is talking about, but to live in the light of it. 
that, Father, we may glorify you in all that we do in this age as we wait for the coming of the next. Amen. So it was just before this, in the prayer that Jesus offered in John chapter 17, that he had said in that prayer of the disciples that, that they are not of the world, of this world, even as I am not of the world. And very soon, now Jesus was going to stand before Governor Pilate with the accusation that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. That charge fell under the Roman law of maestris, of, of treason, of insurrection. It was a crime that was punishable by death, by crucifixion. And when Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, Jesus didn't deny it. But he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world to the great annoyance of Pilate, who didn't know what to do with that. It became evident to Pilate as he questioned Jesus that Jesus was no threat to the emperor's reign, no threat to Roman law. Pilate simply did not know what to do with somebody who didn't deny that he was a king, but said that his kingdom was not of this world. Jesus had prayed that though we're not of the world, he said they're still in it, and he prayed that we not be taken out of the world. As followers of Jesus, we remain in the world, but we're not to be of it because Jesus is the not-of-this-world king of a not-of-this-world kingdom. And it's a kingdom that the world can't understand. Jesus finishes praying after they had celebrated the Passover. He goes out to the Kidron Valley to an olive grove that was there, to the garden. And Jesus had met there many times with his disciples. Judas knew the place. And he brought a group of soldiers, we're told, a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, who is it that you want? And Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There's some debate among um, scholars of the New Testament um, how big this detachment of soldiers were. Some people argue it was uh, 600 people. Some people say that it was 40. The lower number seems more probable. But they were soldiers, however. And that word indicates that they were Romans, armed and expecting trouble. When they said they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am he. Now, there's some commentators who see in the words of Jesus there a claim to divinity. And perhaps John saw such a claim as well, but I doubt the soldiers did. 
the words that Jesus speaks here in Greek are the same words that you would use if someone came and said they were looking for you and you said, I am he. You'd say the same thing that Jesus said here. And so the suggestion that some have made that the soldiers, when they heard Jesus say, I am here, literally just the words I am, that when they fell to the ground, they did so in reverence, makes no sense. Because they later arrested him. And we might wish that John gave us some more information, but the more likely motivation is that they fell back into a defensive position, expecting a fight to come. And it was a fight that never came. If it had been a worldly movement, a worldly kingdom, a fight surely would have come. But it's not. And Jesus let them take him away as a lamb to the slaughter. It's a kingdom the world simply cannot understand. Now, I think the divisions uh, in our own country today give us uh, insights into the, into the kingdoms of the world, uh, maybe not separate geopolitical entities, although we could apply it there as well. But, you know, worldly kingdoms, they, they operate by law, which is to say they operate by compulsion. And the deep divisions that we see in our nation today, I think, could be, be characterized pretty well by saying you've got two sides, each of them trying to enact laws to compel people on the other side to do what they want. And let me tell you that we have zero chance of salvation by good laws. Speaking of God's own law, Paul writes, if righteousness could come through the law, Christ died for nothing. The law of God is good, and it would work great if people weren't sinners. But for people who are dead in their trespasses and sin, good laws can't make us good people. Human beings don't need better laws. We need changed hearts. And Christ came to bring the gospel of a kingdom that's not of this world. By his death and resurrection, by sending his Holy Spirit, God has done, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, God has done what the law was powerless to do, to change hearts. And unlike the kingdoms of the world, this not of this world kingdom is invisible. It can't be associated with the geopolitical entity. Governments that try to adopt it or co-opt it must either corrupt it or be destroyed by it because the system simply will not fit here. 
Jesus likened this kingdom to leaven and bread. You can't see it, but you can see its effects in the lives of people. Lives that are radically changed. You know, I was a, a, a new Christian going to a church. There was a, um, an, an older gentleman, quite, quite elderly actually, at the time, his name was Mr. Hayes Camp, and he owned a construction company. And um, his, con- his construction company was, was very uh, successful. And, um, and, and he became very well off as a result of it. And I uh, remember as a young Christian was talking to him about, about following the Lord and uh, discipleship. And I was surprised to find out that he hadn't grown up in the church He'd become a Christian uh, later in life after he had gone into business for himself. The second year after he became a disciple of Jesus is reading his, his, reading his Bible. And, uh, and, that, and that year, he gives 10%, a tithe, of his considerable income to the church. And this is somebody he'd never given. He said, my philosophy for that was what's mine is mine. And now he gives 10% of a considerable income to the church, which triggers an IRS audit. And the auditor shows up and he wants to know what's the scam, what's the scheme. And as he questioned uh, this man, and I just couldn't, he said, why, why would you do this? He said, because I've become a follower of Jesus. And, and, and the man was baffled. He couldn't understand it. And he said, I can't figure out what it is that you're up to, but I know you're up to something. And uh, he said, he said well, what if we just disallow this a charitable contribution? And Mr. Hayes Camp said, you, you do what you think you have to do. I know what I have to do as a follower of Jesus. It's a kingdom that the world can't understand. And here was a man who had gone from... Uh, having the philosophy of what's mine is mine, and, and maybe even and what's yours is mine, to, to believing that nothing was his, that it was all owned by the Lord, that he was just the steward of it. As followers of Jesus, we remain in the world, but we're not to be of the world because Jesus is the not of this world king of the not of this world kingdom. And, and it's a kingdom perspective that Christ's followers have to continually grow in. And let me jump ahead a little bit in our story here uh, to verse 33. Jesus has been brought before Pilate. And Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? But Pilate did not like that answer. He said, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
What is truth? Pilate asked. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. They almost did. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The kingdom that Jesus brings, though, cannot be advanced or defended with worldly weapons. And Jesus commanded Peter, he said, put your sword up. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? The kingdom that Jesus brings can't be advanced, can't be defended by worldly weapons. You mean like, like swords and guns? Yes. But not only those. The, the factions of the world weaponize anything they can get their hands on to advance their cause. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so what was the weapons that Paul is talking about? Is it it even philosophy and argument? Read Corinthians, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Friends, beware of the false teachers that abound today. There are those people who have the aim of establishing some, uh, some earthly kingdom, some earthly fiefdom, who see in this concept of the kingdom of God a useful tool for them to exploit. Maybe you've seen the bumper stickers or the social media posts. You've seen these, they'll say something like, well, if we ever want this nation to be blessed again, if we ever want wealth and prosperity again, we'd better turn to the Lord. Have you seen bumper stickers like that? I hope you recognize the serpent's voice in statements like that. You understand what it's saying? God is the means to prosperity. He's the means to wealth. He's the means to blessing. Jesus came to bring us back to the God who's not a means to something else, who's the end in himself, the one for whom we were created. It was Christ himself who was the one for whom Paul counted all of his gain lost and all of his achievement rubbish. And citizens of God's kingdom pray for his kingdom to come. That means we pray for the kingdom of the world that we live in. We seek its good, but not as some ultimate end for which God is our means in order to be able to get there. The citizens of God's kingdom echo the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego regarding our earthly nation. We would pray God is able to deliver our nation, but if not, we will not bow down and worship their idols. 
we will have the attitude of Habakkuk, who when he discovered that God was not going to save his nation, but would let it fall to the godless Babylonians, declared, I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. God is not a means to the end of something else. Beware of the false teachers who tell you that that God, that the gospel of Christ is the means to some earthly blessing and comfort. Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, For I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their appetites and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. And Paul's concern, he says there, was with those who were enemies of the cross of Christ. Christ is hardly an offense, hardly a stumbling if we remove the cross. It's the cross that's an offense. It's the cross that's a stumbling. As followers of Jesus, we remain in the world, but we're not to be of it because Jesus is the not of this world king, of a not of this world kingdom. And it's a kingdom that's rooted in the cross. Put up your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And of course, that cup that the Father had given him to drink was the cross. He he knew, John tells us, what was going to happen, what, what, what lay in his future. He came to suffer the wrath of God for us so that our sins could be done away with, so that we could be restored and reconciled to God. Do not think that by coming to Jesus, you escape the cross. Jesus calls you to the cross. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus said it this way in the Gospels. He said, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up one's own cross was to go to one's own death. Paul wrote, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. What does that mean, 
practically. To live as a citizen of this kingdom that the church prays for, that Jesus came to proclaim, to live according to its standards, let me be very clear about this, will put you at every earthly disadvantage. It will put you at every earthly disadvantage. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Lend and don't expect back. If you want to be first, put yourself last. The greatest will be the one who makes himself the servant of others. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it for Jesus' sake. If you're struck on the left cheek, turn the right one and offer it. If you are unjustly forced to go one mile, what Jesus is referring to when he spoke those words is that Roman soldiers would come up to the people of the land quite illegally, I might say, and conscript them and force them to carry their load. Just take them away from their business and say, I have things to bear, you're going to carry them for me. And you're going to carry them a mile. And Jesus said, if somebody does that, go two miles with them. Do not resist an evil person. You know, you read those statements from the lips of Jesus. They don't fit here. They don't make sense. The world doesn't operate that way. Try going to Wall Street and say, hey, I've got a business plan. Here it is. Try going to the halls of government, to Congress or to the military and say, I've got a plan for how to uh, carry on our operations. Here it is. When I was young and more naive, I thought when I read these things that what this meant is that, hey, even though this doesn't seem to make sense, even though people would look at these things and they'd say, this can never succeed in the world if we do these things, Yet to everyone's amazement, they, they will succeed in the world because we've done things God's way. And as I walk through life, as I experienced more things, as I saw other people living out the reality of the kingdom, as I read my Bible more and became uh, more deeply attuned to what it taught, I realized that that is not so. Those who follow Jesus will place themselves at every disadvantage in the world. They'll have their faces slapped, their goods stolen, promotions lost. They'll suffer unjust humiliations and unjust conscriptions. Others will get the credit that they deserve. because we're not living according to the kingdoms of this world. If we were, we'd behave much differently. We would fight and devour and grasp and connive. We would demand our rights and save our lives. But Christ came to proclaim and to bring 
a not-of-this-world kingdom. It's a kingdom that requires crucifixion. Not for the king alone, but for all who would follow him. Make no mistake about it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The not of this world kingdom is a kingdom that the world cannot understand. It's a kingdom that's not natural. Even to the followers of Jesus, even even to Peter here. It's a perspective in which we must grow. It's a kingdom rooted in the cross. In crucifixion to the world. As we live according to the principles of, the ethics of, the code of, and we look for a kingdom that will never be shaken and that will never end. As followers of Jesus, we remain now in this time in the world, but we're not to be of it. Because Jesus is the not of this world king. Of a not of of this world kingdom. Let me ask the elders to come forward for the Lord's table.